0: Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, humans have made significant transformational changes, which in turn have led to the renaming of periods, we call them ages. You've personally just experienced the information age and what a ride it's been. Now, consider that you might now just be living through that into this new transitional age, the Age of Infinite. The age in which is not defined by scarcity and abundance, by a redefining lifestyle consisting of infinite possibilities and infinite resources. The ingredients for an amazing sci-fi story that has come to life as together we create a new definition of the future. The podcast is brought to you by the Project Hot Foundation, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, the Hot, we were named by NASA, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem than to turn those endeavors, the paradigm shifting thinking and the innovations back on earth to improve how we live on earth for all species. Today, we're going to be exploring, which I thought was going to be our topic, but we've got a merger here, is capturing pictures of space as a means of improving the human species. But then it's kind of got a different twist here a little bit, taking pictures of space to improve the human race. And before I get into this, this is the first time I'm going to share this with anybody. Creating a title can take up to three hours, and it is not an easy uh, ordeal. We don't just come up with a topic. Our guest today, Andrew McCarthy. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Good. We had a an awesome experience trying to come up with the title, and Andrew can share that it was it's challenging. It's not an easy process, but. Uh, We found one and Andrew just gave me another one. So I figured I'd kind of toss it in there. So let me add to you why Andrew's on. And I think that'll be valuable. On Instagram, Andrew has his uh, username is uh, Cosmic Background. He has today about 380,000 followers. And in my feed, I consistently see these absolutely amazing images of space and the moon. A few of the moon were just mind-boggling. And I, uh, he's an, a freelance astrophotographer. Astro and I decided at this point, where I think this is going to be our 40th in our sequence, that we need to continue to expand the view of who's in the space industry and what they deliver and what they can help us to do moving forward. And I decided to reach out to Andrew, amazing guy, and we're going to be covering whichever topic, I'll use the first one, capturing pictures of space as a means of improving the human species so that we can make a difference as we move forward um, as humans on this planet. So Andrew, do you have an outline? Sure do. Okay, can you give them give give me the points, please?
1: Sure. Uh, So to start, I'm going to discuss the status quo.
0: One, the status quo. Okay. Number two.
1: Why should we care if people like space?
0: Should we care if people like space? Next.
1: Why space is the ultimate motivator.
0: Is the ultimate motivator. Next.
1: The modern information age versus the arts.
0: Information age versus the arts. Next.
1: And lastly, why the moon is key.
0: Why the moon is key. So i love you okay let's start with this first one you started with uh, the status quo what do you mean well with any any
1: change in human history is always a disruption of the status quo so uh you know any the, the fundamental driving force behind life on this planet is um you know our organism humans uh basically looking at the status quo and deciding to make a change. Um, and that is even precedes humans, of course, when you look at like the basic evolution, for example, basic organisms mutating form appendages um, and your know, early, early creatures, early, early humans actually becoming like bipedal, for example, you know, evolutionary changes uh, to figuring out how to use tools to solve problems uh, and learning basic survival skills uh, and things like migration. Those were all born out of uh, looking at a problem, and coming up with a solution. Okay. Uh, whether whether naturally through uh, through evolution, through mutations, or through intelligence. In humans, we're uh, intelligent creatures, so we're accelerating that process today. And disrupting the status quo has become a means to reach capitalistic goals and uh, reach uh, new frontiers, uh, physical frontiers, and uh, more... Um, metaphorical frontiers so there's people that stand out uh, as disruptors Um, you know like I came from the tech startup space and uh, you know people are always coming up with new ideas to fill consumer gaps and you know those people are disruptors they identify a problem they come up with a way to
0: change just just for my knowledge what was your background uh, in the tech space
1: I worked in uh, in sales and business operations so I, uh, I have convinced people that they had a problem in the current business model and to try to
0: sell them some software to solve that problem. What, what type of uh, applications? I
1: sold marketing software for a while, and then I moved on to partner management software. Mm-hmm. So things that uh, just help people manage their business.
0: Okay. Just wanted to know your background a little bit in that sense. That's great. Okay. So it's a means of capitalistic goals, people who stand... Uh, stand out from them and stand up to make these changes? OK, go ahead.
1: So humans in general, and being very, very um, general here, we're very, very adaptable. So we're we're survivors, right? Like you can throw us in pretty much any environment, any situation, and we adapt to that environment. Uh, and I, I think that can be a good thing and a bad thing. Um, and the reason I think it's a bad thing is because I think fewer people seek to change their environment for the better. Um, where one per, type of person potentially adapt to that environment and they essentially just suffer through it. Um, others are looking at ways to improve their, their situation.
0: Wait, wait, um, wait, wait, wait. wait. You just said you believe most people uh, adapt for, for worse. Is that what you really saying?
1: Well, so, so I'm saying we, we are survivors, right? Like, so yeah. you, we can adapt to any environment and when I, when I say adapt, I don't necessarily mean like in a way where we're changing, maybe it's a psychological adaptation to where we just work. We become content with the status quo. Maybe it's living in poverty. Maybe it's living in a poor climate. Um, You know, there's uh, there's a a certain type of person that is compelled to uh, leave that situation. Yep. Uh, and there's a type of person that is content staying in that situation, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. Um, you know, it's simply a, uh, simply I'm just making an observation about human nature.
0: And but your your contention was that most people uh, don't don't change it for the better, and they actually make it worse.
1: Not necessarily make it worse, but they simply they simply don't work to improve
0: their situation. Yeah,
1: that's that's an observation that I'm making. And by the way, I could be completely
0: wrong. No, no, that's okay. It's (laughs) it's it's what's driving you to do your photography and do your work. It's an interesting take that you're believing that individuals who get into a bad position, and it's okay, again, I'm not, I'm just trying to, I'm listening to what you're saying. And you see the world as not enough individuals trying to make a change, uh, or don't know how to make a change, maybe that could be added that they don't know how to make a change, or that making a change to improve their conditions for the better.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. That's the observation that I've made simply about human nature. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I'll make a, a very rudimentary example of that, Um, you know, for example, early humans, you have, um, you you know, they're sitting in a cave, winter comes around, one guy sits there and shivers through winter, one guy learns how to knit himself a sweater, one guy moves to warmer climate, right? So there's two people that are disrupting the status quo, one guy is not. One is disrupting the status quo by staying where he is and figuring out how to stay warm by knitting himself some clothes the other guy figures out how to stay clothes or uh, stay warm by simply relocating he's he's marching across the desert now looking for a better climate and uh, hopefully he finds it might die too but <laughs> at least he's, Does he's happen. trying something yep so so we've got two examples of disruptors there and uh, you know in many ways our modern civilization is based on those people the guy sitting in the cave, shivering, um, he didn't really contribute anything to the development of society. Um, and uh, then again, nothing, nothing against this guy, because you know he's making he's making a situation work one way or another. Um, but the guy that's inventing clothing, um, you know, that's that's knowledge that. Is going to be passed around other humans. The guy that's the guy that's migrating. He's now going to spawn offspring in a better climate. So you could say they're actively advancing uh, the human race just by just by making these simple changes to make their life better. Um, They've disrupted the status quo. They no longer have to shiver in a cave every single winter. Um, So the reason I'm focusing on the status quo is because I've found that there's a status quo associated with modern perception of space. And uh, perception of space, in my experience, falls into three main categories. You have groups of people that are very, very positive about space. Uh, people, like, I, I, would, I would say I fall into this category. Because the, the, uh, to me, I'm I put upset.
0: them into the enthusiastic, the, the enthusiast world.
1: There, there you go. There you go. I'm very enthusiastic about space. I um it's a big part of my life. I'm actively working uh, in the industry to an extent and like everything that I do spaces in the back of my mind uh, because it's it's just simply falls in line with what I personally believe and what is interesting to me.
0: Okay.
1: Um you also have a group of people uh that are neutral about space. Um and I I'm I'm being generous with the word neutral because um, you know, there's, there's, they're they're going to have moments of positivity about space. But um, where I've, where I found um, in my interactions with people and my interactions with my audience is your average person, their their knowledge of space is really limited. You know, perhaps they learned about space in elementary school. Uh, you know, they they read about the Apollo programs. You know, unless they're old enough to have lived through them, uh, and they're their perception of space is really molded off of maybe pictures they've seen from the Hubble telescope, random news snippets about things that we've discovered on Mars. And they enjoy those things, but it's at such a superficial level that it doesn't really change anything about their life. Um, they go around their day just simply knowing that, oh, there's astronauts in space, but how does that help me? Uh, and yeah, they're uh, they they might be aware that space is involved in some of their modern comforts, like GPS, for example. I think most people understand that that's because of the space program. We have satellites that can track your position, so you can you know find the nearest Starbucks when you're on a road trip. Uh, and there's um, there's other comforts as well. You know, like maybe maybe Wi-Fi. A lot of people understand Starlink is um, going to be providing internet for people, and um, they understand those things. But but how much of it does it really affect their daily life they don't really think it does so they don't really care uh, they care a little bit but not enough to, to really change anything
0: so l- let me expand that a little bit it's not that they don't think about it they they you just have it and I, I'm using that from personal experience I have always been most of my life I've not been an enthusiast so I see moments of positivity but when I go through my day I do not say Oh, my, I got my weather because of GPS. Oh, my glasses are scratch resistant. Oh, I'm in a plane and the, the boots on the plane are because of GPS, uh, because of space. I don't think that way. So, my day, if I really broke it down, even as engaged as I am in the space industry, I don't think about it more than I would say a little bit. So, I probably am more of this neutral person. It's just that I don't take this. Um, I don't brush it off. I'm actually learning about it.
1: You're, you're, I I would think you'd lean more into the positive category just simply because you, I think, understand the impact on your life a little more than the average person.
0: Yes. I would, I would agree with you. The only difference is it's only been the past five years.
1: Well, you, uh, at least you're not in the other camp. There's a negative camp. Okay. Uh, and I didn't even know that this existed. But there is a mainstream perception that is growing that money uh, that money that is spent on advancements in space are a complete waste and that they should be spent on humanitarian or environmental causes on Earth because they see those things as being more not only more important to the human species, but also more relevant to their day to day life.
0: Oh, yeah, this is this is a huge group. This is an amazing large, large group.
1: I honestly didn't realize it because I was so blinded by my own love of space that I didn't understand how people couldn't see it as being so important. So that was my own naivete.
0: Oh, oh (laughs) my. This this group is so large that in some cases, I believe it supersedes both the other groups together.
1: That is depressing to hear.
0: (laughs) Well, I think about it in this light. How, uh, I, how much space education did you have your entire life growing up? Not much.
1: I think it was a little section in elementary school, maybe a little section in seventh grade. Um, and then I think uh, all of my knowledge after that was really self-motivated as an adult.
0: So I, I will tell you that I had just as little. So what would be the belief... that would change my mind otherwise, if I never saw, learned about it or experienced it. We have a little different age group, uh, categories between the two of us. I remember, I I don't remember, but I have, my parents took the newspaper and I think we still have it from one of the Apollo missions. So those, these things happened, but during that same time, there there was conflict For in the United States, if we look at just my home. So it wasn't a big deal. And we had Charlie Bolden on from NASA as a former administrator. And he said, while the whole space industry thinks everybody's watching Elon Musk, they're not. So yeah, this was a very large group.
1: Well, I really wanted to bring up that group um, because I feel like it is very important to me personally that I change that perception on as many people as I can. Uh, and you know, there's, it's, it's a challenging road because there's foundational beliefs yeah, almost like a religion. And I feel like when it comes to things that come, that, that come down to like environmentalism, humanitarianism, and anything political with a political slant to it, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like a religion. Uh, hmm. to where it's such a foundational belief that it becomes a part of your personality and it becomes very hard to shake. Um, and like it may, like space is a part of my personality. If you told me going to space is a waste of time, I would just laugh at you. I mean, there's, there's nothing you can do to change my mind. And like, I'll, I'll recognize that right now. Like you could have the best argument in the world and I just simply won't take it seriously because it's a foundational belief for me. I, so, I believe yeah, it. Like, and, you, and, they
0: have, and they have have the opposite. So yes. exactly.
1: Exactly. Um, so, so how do you, how do you prevent that? How do you change that status quo? Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the answer for a lot of people is you really can't, uh, because, like I said, it's a foundational belief. Now, I know where my passion for space comes from. When I was a little kid, I was like seven or eight years old, and my dad had this big old telescope, and he showed me. Uh, Jupiter and Saturn through that, just in our backyard in Folsom, California, growing up, and like I, seeing the rings of Saturn with my own eyes changed me forever. I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time, but that set me down a very particular path,
0: hmm.
1: and it, it it made me, I think, understand my place in the world, almost like that overview effect astronauts talk about, which I've obviously never experienced, but. Um, But I imagine it's to a similar degree, the moment you recognize your place in the cosmos, it changes your perception of the potential of the human race.
0: So let me let me do one thing just to help anybody who's listening in for the one moment. The overview effect is the experience that is the outcome of being in space and seeing the world. Aside from being on it, so you're either on the International Space Station looking down and you see the world in a view that you've never seen, or from the 24 astronauts who've seen the world from afar, and it was named by Frank White, who we've done a program on, and that name that what the reference that was just given was that Andrew gave was based upon this thing called the overview effect, so you can continue on, I just want to make sure people understand what that meaning is.
1: Great call. Great call. Yep. So I, I think I experienced a mini version of that over effect, overview effect when I saw, uh, when I saw planets. For the
0: first do, time. do you remember that yep. experience or are you just remembering that you had the experience?
1: Well, that's the funny thing about memories. Who knows?
0: <laughs> so, so when you had that experience at that time, your father brought you up to the microscope. He said, take a look here. He had positioned it to see the, the rings of Saturn. And what went through your head?
1: I think at first I thought it was a picture, uh, oh, okay. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. There's like a picture in the telescope, and my dad was just explaining to me. It's like, no, that's a whole other planet. It's like, like Earth, but different. And I was like, oh, okay. Then he's like, you know, that the has has rings around it because the rings are held in place by gravity. And you know, of course, I have no clue what he's talking about. I just knew that it was pretty. It was it was fascinating. I just I didn't want to stop looking at it, um, and. He revisited that a few times with me uh, over the course of the, the next couple years. Uh, you know, Every time he had his telescope out, he'd give me a look through it. And so I, you know, I saw Jupiter. And this was around the time uh, the Shoemaker-Levy impact happened. Uh, that was the comet that was broken up in Jupiter, uh, as it passed Jupiter. And it struck Jupiter, uh, left a series of stars all along the side. And you can actually see them with an amateur telescope. They just looked like a little, little dark blemishes along the surface.
0: So the, the shoemaker levee is what they named that.
1: Correct. Yeah. That was named after the two astronomers that discovered it.
0: Oh, so levee is the name. Okay. So I'm thinking of levee, like a, a dam breaking, uh, levies for water and things. So this is a shoemaker levee or two people. And they came up with this concept. Uh, they, it's called a shoemaker Levy because they saw, uh, jupiter being struck did they see it or they just see the impact of it
1: they just discovered the comet okay they discovered the comet and then once they discovered the comet and i'm not too clear on who exactly made you know calculated the orbit and figured out that it was actually going to hit jupiter uh but it was known fairly quickly after the discovery that it would that was on course to actually impact jupiter
0: wow so they were they they were they did they actually see it happen
1: yeah, yeah, we, we actually watched the impacts happen. Like,
0: oh, really? And, Hubble, cool. and
1: Hubble's got some great pictures. You can just Google, you know, Hubble Shoemaker Levy, and you'll you'll see the impact scars on Jupiter. Because uh, the, the comet broke up and struck the Jupiter's atmosphere and, you know, it didn't even hit a surface. It's just, you know, impacting the atmosphere at that speed is basically like hitting concrete. So it's just you know, exploded and it left like earth sized stars, like stars bigger than our planet on, on the side of Jupiter. So really just this crazy okay. celestial event that we we're all able to witness. And we're incredibly lucky. It happened at a time when we had the technology to actually watch it.
0: Oh, um, so, so I'm going to stop you. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it, if it leaves earth size impacts, I need a reference to how big Jupiter is to earth.
1: Uh, it's about ten times as wide. So if Jupiter, or if, if Earth is about eight thousand miles wide, Jupiter is about eighty thousand miles wide.
0: Okay, that helps so, me. So, so you can have these large craters on that size. Okay, yep. Not exactly craters per se. It's more like
1: a discoloration in the atmosphere because again, it's, it's not a, it's not a rocky surface on Jupiter. So it's just when the impacts hit, it basically just cooks everything because the energy just converts directly into heat and left these like dark brown scars that look like, you know, basically just burned the surface of Jupiter. Uh, but it's really just the atmosphere discoloring because of the impact. Okay. Uh, but, but yeah, those pictures on Hubble, they're really cool. Uh, but, but again, that was happening. And I think that helped me understand just the way space worked. Uh, because, you know, small developing brain, you know, it's really hard to wrap your head around the, the cosmos. I mean, I mean, it's hard as an adult to understand the scales involved. Uh, so as, you know, as a kid, it's especially hard, but, you know, seeing these things progress, um, played a really big role. And I think developing, uh, you know, my personal attitude about space. Um, so, but, and here's the challenge and here, I think this is why the status quo is such a thing. Uh, to your point, most people don't really receive a lot of exposure to this stuff. You know, if you, if you have a little bit of exposure in elementary school, when your brain isn't quite developed enough to truly grasp the, incredibleness of what what you're learning about. Um, there's no real reason to get that excited about it, uh, and especially so because there's so little discussion about how it impacts humanity. Uh, because for the most part, these events don't impact humanity. They're just they're just happening out there, and we're just we're just observing. We're just sitting here on the planet, watching them happen.
0: And and how. Does it, how does, well, it impacted you as a person, mm-hmm. but how did these things impact humanity? So that's, in your where, eyes?
1: that's where I think I, I, I wanna, it almost touches on my next point. You know, it's like, why why should we care that that people like me exist? Why should we care that there's people that love space?
0: Well, um, I, I the, the interesting thing as you're going through this is I, in seventh grade, can't remember the teacher's name, but the teacher had a saltwater aquarium. And I really loved it. I got along with this biology teacher in the science class. It was really amazing. And I decided that I was going to have a saltwater aquarium, which if you don't know about aquariums, freshwater is much easier than saltwater to be able to maintain. You have to keep a certain pH, you have to keep a certain cleanliness, you have to have certain types of fish in it or uh, animals in it. Uh, so what I did is I didn't go to the space route. I continued on with my interest in biology and I hadn't seen aquarium for years and years and years. And my upbringing was sciences, but never touched on space ever. Right.
1: Right. And, and you know what, we need people with passion about those things. So it's, it, it, it is, and and like my passion about space is in no way critical of other people's
0: oh, and, and individual passion. I didn't take it that way. I was just oh, thinking right. about how much of an influence right. your father, that one experience had on you. And you probably had other experiences where I look back in my history, I had this experience that I gravitated towards and how impactful that, those little minor moments, which your father might not remember at all, yet had all that influence in your future life.
1: Yeah, it's 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 crazy. The little things that, that shape young brains. Okay,
0: so you said you wanted to go to number two? Well,
1: yeah, so, uh, and I, I sorry, I, I don't recall the exact wording of your question, but I think it ties in really nicely to, you know, what, what I'm, where I'm taking this. And that's, why should we care that other people like space? You know, as we mentioned, there's, a, uh, there, there's a, a large group of people that are just negative about space and they see it as a waste of money. And I don't want to debate that point. And here's why. So those people are also disruptors. Uh, you know, I mentioned the, the, the value in disruptors in a society. Those people are also disruptors. They're not disruptors that are helping, you know, me out and what I want to see in the world but they're helping in their own ways. And um, so, so I'm, I'm, I want to be, be sure I'm clear on that, that it's okay to have people that feel the way they do about Earth and be passionate about these humanitarian projects. Um, but I want them to like space because they need to see that we're actually on the same page and have the same goals.
0: So I think, I think if, you were to, if we were to go back and I knew what you were going to go to today I, in, this, in this one comment you made. I would not do it positive, negative, and neutral. I would do it something such as enthusiast something and another thing so that they don't have a negative connotation because what you're really saying is there are three different types of people in the world and they're all necessary and they fill a certain need.
1: Ever Everybody's necessary. Absolutely. But okay. within the, within the, uh, the, 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 the <laughs> specific topic yep. of... Of space exploration and space technologies, um, I think there's people that are working backwards, and that's why I, I refer to them as negative. It's okay. not that the people, you know, in general, are a waste. They're wonderful people. They have valid perspectives. They have valid agendas. Um, they just simply, I, in my opinion, go. They they they're
0: not seeing space for what it is. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's where that's, that's what, what you're I, working on. That's what I'm that's working what on. That's what I'm working on. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um,
1: so so yeah, I just, maybe there's a better word for them, but uh, I, I don't I don't mean to call them out as being negative.
0: But no, and I, I know that that's what I'm saying. <laughs> if, if we if we were to go back in time and be able to adjust those few comments, I would have probably thought of different words because we're not saying that individuals who are not interested in space are negative. We're saying that they have a different perspective of how the world should run, what to do, where we should go, and what should be engaged in, while there are people who are very enthusiastic and believe space is an instrument or a change vehicle or something exciting to explore and develop. And and people have different interests.
1: Exactly. Exactly. They do. And they make very valid observations. Um, you know, like I—I I don't want to necessarily debate some of the points that they'll make about wasteful spending in the history of the space program because honestly, they're probably right. There's probably has been wasteful spending in the history yeah. of the space program. Um, it, but, but we—you know—you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's—you know—it's we—we screw up sometimes, but overall, we're marching forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's something that's overlooked. Um, by by individuals in that in that camp is the huge list of humanitarian environmental technological advancements that were born from these programs that push the boundaries in space like solar technology for example you know if we're talking about you know environmental concerns on earth solar technology is you know is absolutely huge for you know green renewable energy you know and and that's just one, one small example, but solar technology wouldn't be where it is today if we weren't for the space program. And then things like water and air filtration. Um, you know, think about, you know, how important water filtration is uh, for, you know, people that don't necessarily have access to clean water. Uh, things like LEDs that change the way we use energy. LED bulbs are in every home now, and they used to use, you know, these horribly inefficient bulbs that were literally just cooking inside their uh their their glass their glass bulbs radiating heat which is you know just a just a waste of energy you don't use light bulbs to heat your home but they are heating your home and that's just wasted energy so so things like LED technology are huge insulation insulation in your home has been molded by the space program because insulation is so important in space so so the list goes on and understanding these impacts is hard before we have them so before we developed these technologies, we didn't know what we what was going to what kind of challenges we were going to be faced. We faced these challenges, and we solved these problems because we took on a venture uh, that we never tried before, and we didn't know the humanitarian or environmental impact these these endeavors would have. We couldn't have known. So, yeah. pushing the boundaries is important, because but we don't always know why we just so, know that it is important.
0: So you're, what, you're, uh, what you're trying to articulate is that there are a lot of spin-offs and I, from the ideation and development of the space ecosystem that have benefited individuals, and if they, if an individual could connect and understand it, they would be less likely to fit in the camp of anti-space activity. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely.
1: These, in my opinion, these are the types of things that that could be taught um, and and actually actually claimed. You know that these technologies are born out of the space industry, and this is how they've helped because people see these impacts in their day to day lives. You know, you can you'll see a reduced heating bill and energy bill, and we know how wrong it is to waste energy. Um, so so people that have solar on their house, like that's people have solar on their house because of the space program. The technology was would have like it would have been very hard to have developed that kind of technology without that incentive. Not saying it wouldn't have developed, but we we really don't have a way of knowing.
0: I I I agree, and it's I agree that they should be taught. I don't know how you see it should be done. Yet even with us knowing that, people like me because I'm not in the enthusiast camp, I'm working in it is that I, I open up my phone and I see the weather. I know it comes from satellites, but I don't sit there and say, oh, wow, satellites. <laughs> I don't, and I know when my UPS package is delivered, I know they use GPS to figure out turns and efficiency, but yet when I get the package, I just want the package.
1: Yeah, that's that's honestly how I feel about a lot of that stuff too. Um, so. You know, I'm an enthusiast enthusiast more because the long-term benefits of pushing the boundaries into space, which, yeah. um, which is actually the second part of my point about why should we care if people like space, right? So right now we have, I think, seven people in the International Space Station, and we've had a continued presence in space for the last 21 years. So right now, let's say that Shoemaker-Levy comet hit Earth instead of Jupiter, what would happen to the human race? I just said it left Earth sized marks on Jupiter. So I don't think we have to use our imaginations very much to, to say it would be catastrophic. Uh, and uh, those thankfully, those events are extremely rare. They like some, an impact that size happens on the order of like maybe every 100 million years. So very, very, very rare. Um, but who would survive? Uh, maybe cockroaches. And the seven astronauts that we have in the ISS, seven people. And they wouldn't live long because they need a resupply mission to stay up there. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> And there might be collateral damage from the fact that the Earth has been shattered. Well, uh, if, well. So, in theory, as long as it keeps the mass and the mass doesn't get too misshapen, right? Otherwise, uh, they're just flown in. Orbit. They're flown into. They're, they're shot into anywhere. Uh, they're <laughs> exactly. they're going to keep on going. Uh, there's got to be. I don't even know. Would there be? I've got to believe there'd be a shock wave that would hit them going outward.
1: Well so so if there was enough ejecta from the impact it would uh it would throw to be debris into orbit yeah, and yeah would probably collide with the debris um shock waves need a medium to propagate through so they actually don't move through space
0: but even it, because it's low earth at uh low earth orbit would there be wouldn't there still be enough of a reverberating impact outside because they're so close to the earth well
1: um I am not an astrophysicist.
0: So I'm afraid I don't. You're an astrophotographer. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) So I I would think, and I'm taking a wild guess because you're still in, you're in low earth orbit, but you're right next to atmosphere. That probably would be like a a bomb going off. But somebody who's listening to this can tell us later that what, how how far off I was. So yes, if we hit, there would be seven and then zero.
1: Exactly. And let's say they were in uh, geostationary orbit instead, or maybe they had a base on the moon instead, they'd live a lot longer. Um, if they had a, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, self, um, self-sustained ecosystem on the moon, you know, maybe they, they were able to, you know, farm on the soil or something, they could potentially live indefinitely. Um, and if you have a population of a million people off planet, uh, you've essentially uh, guaranteed the human race endures. A lot of people didn't endure, but the human race did. and the our, you know, past achievements and the, the great things we've accomplished technologically can live on you know, through that new settlement. So,
0: so it's a personal question. Yeah. Uh, do you actually, I mean, honestly, honestly, honestly care that the human species goes on?
1: Well, if I was one of those
0: people (laughs) in that lunar settlement, I would definitely (laughs) care. You would definitely care. Okay. So uh, I I love the argument that people will say, but the human species goes on. I'm thinking, so you really don't care if there's 10 billion people who die on this planet in 20, 40 years. You just want to make sure the human species goes on. That's all that's important to you. And I, I personally, I'm personally about myself and my children and the people I know enduring I, I don't, I, I'm not going to profess to say that I sit around and think about the human species must endure.
1: Well, no, of course not. Because no, no. Some people, you if, if you're dead, why would you care?
0: So but that's an often an argument that's tossed out the human species. We have to continue the survival of the human species. Like, yeah, but my kids aren't going to be on it and their children probably won't be. So if there's only 500 to a thousand people or a million people, even with those numbers, mm, odds are I'm not going to be part of that group. Well, that's
1: uh, just, of course, one example. But if you look at, uh, let's say, there's constant travel between Earth and Moon, enough to where you could evacuate a planet. Uh, okay. It's, like, I'm, I'm obviously getting far out there. into No, 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 no. That's I, actually, theoretically possible. Like, that's you, the end goal here.
0: That's an interesting angle, which I've never heard anybody say, because we have, and I think you had seen it in the video, the mirth, moon and earth economic and eco- ecosystem is, and by the way, anybody listening in, there are two videos that I send people who are going to be a part of the podcast. So there's something called mirth. It is moon and earth. And that was something that I came up with. Burton Lee had a Stanford. So what you're saying, which is an interesting construct, I like it, is that if there's an mirth-based ecosystem, and there is the chance of a, an issue with a foreign flying object, which is very rare, but if there is one, that we could accelerate the movement into space into the moon, and if we get there fast enough with enough rockets and enough capabilities. We have the ability to have more individuals survive. Exactly. Okay, exactly. I, I had not, so, i had not thought about it that way. That's you're the first person who's ever said it in that way, which even gives more credence to the fact that we should have our mirth ecosystem. So okay. exactly.
1: That's uh, in in my opinion, having that type of ecosystem is necessary for people to uh, endure. To people to endure, you know, whatever life throws at them. You know, we we're. We're on the, the the back end of a pandemic here um which could have been a lot worse
0: oh they and, they've and been if, a lot worse yeah
1: and they've been a lot worse exactly in the, in the past you know and i you know, thankfully we have, you know, things like hygiene and, you know, there's, there's, there's ways we've, we've prevented them. We by, have, just by. we have
0: hygiene. <laughs> we just haven't figured out the human side of wearing a mask right. or the political side of it doesn't help or it's a hoax. We haven't figured those things out, but we do have hygiene.
1: Yeah. We, people know to, to, to wash their hands or at least most people do. Uh, and-
0: so, so the, uh, it's interesting. You, you've taken it. Okay, go ahead. Continue with the pandemic.
1: So uh, yeah, it, but again, if there's a pandemic, everybody on the moon would just be like, oh, well, it doesn't affect us. So <laughs> um, so there's benefits to sectioning uh, people. You know, Imagine if there was no boat or air travel during the pandemic, it would have Stayed and at ground at um, at patient zero, like the country of patient zero. It wouldn't it wouldn't have traveled to America, or you know, unless of course it actually started here. And I didn't, and forgive me, I like every time I read the news, I feel like it looks like it started somewhere else. So I don't I don't really know. <laughs> we, we, we
0: and we don't know how far back, and we probably will never know. The right. the the thing, the picture that comes to mind in my head when you're saying this is I would want to make sure that my children were on that ship it wouldn't, it would be okay if I couldn't be one to make it.
1: Yeah. You get, get them tested, get them on no, the,
0: get them on the ship. Right. Just get them on the ship and get them on their way. And I would, in that sense with the moon earth ecosystem, which Mirth I believe is going to be what we've developed next. And that's again, what we're working on is that this gives a, a capability to put in space individuals in what is it it's called a Van Braun, Van Braun. Uh, system which is the circuit the um like a, a ferris wheel in space that people can live in or is the what's the other one that uh bezos has been talking about the orion o'neill the o'neill station is like a tube in space that people can float or the moon okay yeah, i, I a like an
1: example of that in that movie interstellar
0: right in interstellar absolutely tube, yeah yeah, the, I, I just learned recently from one of our team members, Andreas Bergweiler, who's fantastic out of Germany, he's an amazing wealth of information. He just said to me one day, it's not an O'Neill station, it's a Von Braun station. Like, okay, <laughs> I don't know the difference. And so there are two different types. One is like a Ferris wheel, and the other one is like a tube in space, and they're very different.
1: Yeah, the, the 2001 Space Odyssey, I think, is the example of the Von Braun
0: station. Oh, okay, yep, yep, Absolutely.
1: I, I don't know if he was picturing something bigger, though. That one was pretty small.
0: No, the I, I just I know that individuals have been professing that they're going to do this in short periods of time, and it these are huge, massive structures. You, you don't even have a place to stand, and you're going to put 400 people in space or 600 people in space. It's not as much of an impact of this moon which is uh, can house and survive many millions of people. So there's more opportunity in that at the present time. I never, I, I hadn't brought it into the ecosystem survival. That's interesting. You, you kind of did a shift off for me. Thank you.
1: Yeah, well, that's, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well. So, uh, you know, and obviously the example we made was, was just talking about the moon and, you know, you're discussing, you know, if we had stations in orbit, um, you know, and then, but of course this, 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 these problems that I discussed facing the human race become even more insignificant. If the human race was actually on multiple planets, multiple, multiple moons, there's other places we can live besides the moon. Um, you know, obviously Earth is ideal. Earth is the favorite. Um, but we could, we could, in theory, go everywhere um and uh you know I, obviously we've you know discussed you know why i think people should care in a sense where it potentially gives your lineage a chance to endure and survive get off world whatever um but why do we really need people to to care so much still um yeah. and uh, and the the reason is right now i think the obstacles are more political than anything else and um, space ventures are government funded for the most part. There's obviously, um, there's a commercial sector now that's growing. And thankfully, uh, it's really pushing, it, pushing the industry right now.
0: Yeah, well, yet, um, yet but, without the government, without satellites from government and contracts from government, it would be a whole different story.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and what NASA's mission was, was to fill in the gaps on what the commercial sector couldn't do because there was no financial incentive for it. Um, Now there's financial incentive for certain things. So it's kind of growing on its own. Uh, And, you know, of course, NASA is still still going to be pushing that envelope. So they're still very important to this whole thing. Um, But, you know, NASA is, you know, it's getting getting funding from the government and politicians are involved. Politicians are public servants that need to do what people want them to do. So if funding for space isn't popular, it's not going to happen. And if you have a growing camp of people that say, no, NASA is a waste of money. We need to take that money and put it towards, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, humanitarian, you know, causes the focus that year, um, we'll simply stop pushing those boundaries outside of the commercial sector. And, uh, you know, there's a, a chance our space program's just dead. It just, it just, it just stops right there and we never go anywhere.
0: And yet um, if we, if we look at a full world, the Chinese are gonna to continue to develop. They run it as a government agency and develop it. The Japanese space agency tying in with uh, Europe and the US, but the European space agency I read the other day is they're feel with something, and don't quote me, 70 to 80% of all launches came out of SpaceX as a percentage of what went into space that they're now going to try to amp up their position in the space industry. So there's also a competitive nature of who's going to take on this lead and who's going to take advantage of the opportunities that come out of space.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, one of SpaceX's biggest customers is still NASA. Yes. So NASA is still driving that even just by being a customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know exactly how it works out. Like, cause I know there's, they, they do a lot of, um, a lot of launches for, Private companies do. They they put up commercial satellites and things. So it's I know it's not just NASA. A lot of it's um, a lot of it's private money too.
0: Yeah, you've got Rocket Labs. You've got the there's there are a variety of different types of launches going on at the present time. Yes.
1: So so uh, you look at look at uh, where we were in the 60s when we got five percent of the federal budget going to NASA because. The, everybody was really on board I was, okay that's not true not everybody was on board but it was a the public perception was let's get to the moon and it was like a very like and it was like this amazingly just like patriotic thing you know like we're going to go to the moon we're going to beat the soviets uh and, and and people were on board and once people lost interest in that uh, it was no longer a popular political decision, put 5% on the, of the budget towards uh, you know, getting people on the moon. And there's a lot of good arguments for, you know, you know maybe we didn't need to keep going to the moon. You know, it's, it was dangerous. It was expensive. Were you really learning more about the moon? Was there really any reason to keep people up there? Um, so so it's, I, I, I'm not necessarily here to, to debate that point. I'm just showing mm-hmm. you, look at what we accomplished when we got a lot of people interested A lot of people were interested in that and it was a, it was a popular thing uh, to to get people on the moon. So we did it, we did it like like, less than 10 years. We went from, uh, you know, barely, uh, barely figuring out how to get a rocket into orbit to landing American boots on the moon. Um, And that's just crazy. And the fact that we've driven the cost of launches down so much and we're, we we we've really polished the technology you could say that rocket rocket technology has been mature probably since the 60s uh saturn five was you know was pretty bu- pretty bug free considering what it was um and we've not been able to continue to do this it's, there's there hasn't been an incentive uh so we need that incentive we need people to support it and so which
0: which incentive ranks highest than yours is it is is it the saving the human species forever is it what's your your personal reason that this is done for, for mine
1: yeah for my my personal reason uh is i want to i want to stand on the moon and take pictures of Earth. oh cool <laughs> that is my personal reason that's why i want it everybody has their own their own reasons though um there's this I think there's this romanticism to the moon uh, that uh, you know we, we look up there, it's this beautiful thing um, and people like the idea of going there. Honestly, it's a big desert. It'd be horrible up there. Um, it's, not, it's not a good place that is kind to fleshy creatures. So so it, people have to think bigger than
0: that. It's interesting because I'm an earther. It's a, if coming from what is it? The which series? Expanse. They have the Belters in the movie, in the television series, the Expanse. They have a group called the Belters. They live within the um, the the what, do you, what belt do you call that? I can't remember off the top of my head. But the, the, it's the belt uh, outside of Mars. And so I'm an Earther, and what you just described is you'd like to go to space. You think there's many many values in space, but you would like to be on Earth.
1: Well, I think Earth is just simply the best possible place.
0: Okay. Uh, I ju- I'm, just, I'm not judging. I'm just saying I now know you're an Earther. <laughs>
1: well, you know, who knows? You know, maybe they, uh, you know, they, so so it's, I, I actually look at the moon kind of like Las Vegas. Um, you know, think about what, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you, you know anything about Vegas history, but that guy Bugsy, right? He just yeah. had this dream. He's like, let's just build this hotel in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and He did it, and it turned into friggin' Las Vegas. And who would have thought? Yeah. The middle of the desert, there was nothing out there. And he put a casino out there. So now suddenly there's this economy in in Vegas and in the middle of the desert that's huge. And people love it. People go there and they stay. Yeah. And that could be the move.
0: There good, good be- good analogy, excellent analogy. Yes, there will be people who, I wouldn't mind. I would like to visit if I knew it was safe and I could do and I could travel the three, four days, get to the moon, stay, look around, do my thing, uh, maybe invest if there's a possibility and then I'll be on my trip back home. So,
1: so the, one of the next reasons that people, we need to care that people are passionate about space because it's going to increase the size of the pool that people like Bugsy are born out of, people with vision, people like Elon Musk, All right, If you have a million people and one of them is, you know, potentially the next Jeff Bezos, for example, you know, he's, he's doing um, uh, Blue Origin, right? So he's also working in the, uh, working in the space industry. Um, if you have a pool of a billion people instead, all jazzed about space, you'll have a thousand leaders like that born out. So we need this pool of people passionate about space to grow. If we want people like that to be taking risks to getting us up there. So you might have this visionary. That's like, I figured out a way to put a casino on the moon and I'm going to do it. It's going to be an absolute lunatic.
0: No, no. Okay. no. In, in, in project moon, we call call it a billion hearts and minds. Okay. So yeah, you you're exactly right. And the number is a billion. So it's very good.
1: All right, cool. I nailed it. so uh, my point is we need to increase that that pool size of people passionate about space uh, because otherwise you're not going to have enough people taking these risks you're you're uh, we're limited with just elon musk who's really only focused on the transportation that's that's his thing that's his game he's focused on building the vessel that gets us back and forth once that's built it's going to make things easier but still why would somebody take a risk to do anything um, and that's why we need these visionaries. We need people that are going to, like, it's not me. I know it's not me, but there's going to be people that, that see these problems and look to solve them. And there are people like Bugsy that build a hotel in the desert and they'll build an economic reason for people to go to the moon. So this is why we need people passionate and because major frontiers aren't necessarily explored by a society there's exceptions of course i think apollo was an exception that was a society all making the decision to go we're going to get on the moon because it required public support space i think is different i think you're going to get capitalists interested in space and it's going to be individuals that actually end up pushing those boundaries people that say you know what i'm just going to risk it all for cost of the wind and see what happens if i uh if i create a financial incentive for people to go to the moon because it could pay off huge imagine the value of the first mining operation on the moon right so there's a huge cost to transport materials up to the moon so anything in space is instantly worth more than its value on earth right so if you set up a, a mining operation on the moon you're you're going to be worth a fortune to people that want to build settlements near your mining operation, because they don't need to bring raw materials. You have them, All right? So, so there's people that are going to see that and take advantage of it. In my opinion, that's the next step in space exploration. And it's, I think it's soon. I think it's going to happen within my lifetime. Um, how old are you? The, I'm 37. Okay. So within the next within the next couple of decades, I bet we will see that. Um,
0: just yes. Yes. You, just you will. just
1: got to
0: stay focused. You yes. Just gotta you, stay focused. Yes, you will. You
1: will. I love the optimism.
0: <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, what am I doing every day? <laughs> so <laughs> That's kind of a, if, if, if I didn't think that way, we'd be, I'd be in trouble. I'd have to, I should do something else. Okay. I, I, I love what you're saying and you actually articulated it very well differently than I have said a, 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 in certain places, which I like. Okay,
1: well, I, that kind of brings me to my point, and I kind of I think I got into it a little early, but space is really the ultimate motivator. So you you have like if if you're a capitalist and you're looking at the value of raw materials, um, you're you're instantly able to expand your wealth by getting those materials into space. Uh, however however you do it, uh, there's uh, so so there's this uh, meme that that floats around every so often. I think I've seen it on Facebook that says something like this asteroid's worth 10,000 quadrillion dollars or something like that. because uh, so <laughs> it's like filled you, with rare metals. Have you seen that?
0: And what do you know what the name of the asteroid is?
1: Oh, I don't know, but I don't think it matters either because No,
0: it I, I, it does because it's very important to me. Its name oh. is its name is Davida.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
0: <laughs> there is an asteroid it's like worth uh, 19 quadrillion dollars or something like that. And I was looking at it they I said, what's the name of this thing? And it says it was named Davida. That's great. So so, that, so so it might not be important to you, but it's important to me. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm glad it's important to you. But, um, but I hate to break it to you, but those economics actually don't make sense. Because <laughs> if you were to transport that uh, asteroid, Davida, to Earth, it would no longer be worth uh, $19 quadrillion because those rare metals that are on it are no longer rare now that we have them in abundance on Earth. So that's, yeah. that's just basic economics for you. You can't just flood the market with something. Um, and however... It definitely has value in space. In fact, I would argue that it has more value in space because the energy required to get something off of Earth is huge. You know, I I don't know the actual math. um, So again, I'm not an astrophysicist, but but it's like thousands of dollars per pound or something like that. Um, And I know SpaceX is, they're taking really great strides and figuring out efficiencies to get that price down, but it's not going to get really much cheaper. Uh, Because it just can't. You need chemicals to propel these things. Chemical rocketry is fundamentally inefficient. Because you just simply, you have to reject so much mass to get something to move into space. It's, uh, you know, thank you, Newton. (laughs) Yep. Basic laws of physics there. Um, So because the gravity well of Earth is so steep, it makes sense to harvest these materials elsewhere, get them onto rockets, and then you could in theory, bootstrap civilization across the entire solar system uh, because you're now able to harvest things off planet and build the raw materials necessary to to do construction, to build rocket fuel, to do even water, uh, which is obviously necessary for survival. Um, All these things become available off planet and thus are worth their weight in gold. And yeah,
0: no, that's an interesting point that it's not worth it bringing it back. I looked the numbers up. This might be useful for your thinking. When the space shuttle was in operation, it could be launched a payload of 27,500 kilograms for $1.5 or $54,500 per kilogram. For a SpaceX Falcon 9, the rocket used to access the International Space Station, the cost is now down to $2,720 per kilogram. And That was in two thousand and
1: nineteen right uh, and the the starship that he's working on should get it down even lower. I think it was down to something like five hundred dollars
0: yeah hour. it's it's gotten down i I was looking at I tried to, I was doing this as quickly as possible, but it's it's really dropped significantly to and I, again, I don't know the number but it's dropped significantly, so yes
1: but that's still expensive you know I, I mean imagine building a skyscraper on the moon with materials from Earth it's mm-hmm. just It'd be just silly expensive. However, if you can repurpose lunar regolith, you know, if you have a monopoly on a nice iron mine on the moon, you're going to make a killing, you know, selling those materials. And the people that are building the skyscrapers are going to want to use you because it's going to be expensive to set up their own mining operation or transport the materials themselves. So so there's a, there's a really cool economic opportunity there. Um, and, you know, like I'm saying, I think it's just a matter of time before... This this powder keg up there kind of get, gets lit, uh, and we're going to see an explosion uh, in the in the moon economy just because that that potential is there. Um, once once the cost per launch gets low enough to where your average maybe upper middle class person can get on a trip to space, I guarantee you everybody's going to try to do it. I mean, uh, even people that aren't jazzed about space, they like, oh, where were you last weekend? Oh, I was in space. Like, mm-hmm. how cool is that? I mean, it's a bucket list. Um, it just wasn't accessible before, but it's becoming accessible to have civilians travel to space and travel to the moon. It, it will become fi- financially accessible for, I would say, anybody that owns a house, for example. They could probably also pull this off, you know, take out a second mortgage or something. Um, it wouldn't be a smart financial decision, but they could do it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, and because of, because of that, you're going to have potential consumers up there.
0: Yeah, there could, there's uh, going to be people saying, you know, I heard this podcast from Andrew and I needed a second mortgage on my home <laughs> and it's not a bad, it's not a good decision, but I'm doing it anyway. So you'll be getting calls one day.
1: Exactly. We, we have this, so we have this motivator, right? This, mm-hmm. this motivator where you're going to have consumers interested in it. You're going to have, uh, resources available for people to capitalize on those resources and grow. So so we definitely have kind of everything lined up. So what's missing, I think, what's holding us back is again, going back to do enough people really care about this. Do feel passionate about it. Do we have enough people willing to take these risks to, you know, set something up that's going to drive that incentive to set up the first mining operation. Um, and that's of course, where, or uh, hopefully people like me come in and, People like me taking advantage of the informational age that we're all in to get these people interested in the potential out there, um, and that's kind of where I get into my next point um, about the information age and how the arts can play a role in this whole thing. So, uh, as I mentioned, you know, as a kid, I, you know, obviously had really fond memories of space, uh, and you know, it wasn't until I was an adult really that I thought about it and I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to buy a telescope. I want to revisit that experience I had. And I, I did, I bought a telescope. I spent like, I think like 400 or $500 on just, just basically a Dobsonian, a very simple telescope. And what, what did you call it? A, uh, a Dobsonian. It's a oh. very simple type of telescope. It's essentially just two mirrors and an eyepiece. Okay. Uh, but, th- but they're big and they, they allow for very easy, like backyard viewing. Uh, so I bought this thing and I didn't know anything about what I was doing. Um, I didn't know anything really about space other than that. I liked it (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I, I bought this telescope. I assembled it and took it into my backyard. I pointed it at the first bright thing I saw in the sky, which happened to be Jupiter. And I look in the eyepiece and immediately I'm getting that, that, that feeling again, that overview feeling that, um, it's like, suddenly I'm just, I'm just there. I'm understanding my place in the cosmos and I see Jupiter, this gas giant, just floating out there in the vastness of space. And it's never been more apparent to me, my place in the universe. I am on a rock flying through space and there's these other rocks flying through space and we can, we can sit there, we can look at them and we can travel to them. It seemed like it was right there in my grasp. I could see four little moons next to Jupiter. I was thinking to myself as I was looking through there, how cool would Jupiter look from one of those moons? All right, so I'm getting all these feelings, right? So I did what any millennial would do. And I took the iPhone that was in my pocket and tried to take a picture through the eyepiece. And that didn't work out too well. uh, because (laughs) It's just like, I don't want to, I'm not going to get into the mechanics of astrophotography here, but it's just a lot harder than just taking a picture through a telescope eyepiece. Um, So my mission there was, how do I get more people to feel what I'm feeling when I look through the eyepiece. Uh, And I immediately started researching astrophotography because I was like, I just, I just have to do this. I don't know. It was just, I was bit by the bug, I guess. Um, And slowly worked my way into learning the ropes of this, this very niche hobby and started sharing my pictures with the world. Now, what I didn't expect was just some guy in his backyard, me, um, was able to take a picture that gets in front of millions and millions of people, because that's what happened. <laughs> I took a picture of the moon, did my best to recreate how the moon looked through, through the eyepiece um, by researching all the photography techniques, et cetera. I spent like a week on this picture. Um, and it went viral and got just millions of eyes on my work. And I think more importantly, it inspired other people to try to take pictures themselves. So the information age has made it possible for people like me with an idea to spread it through other, spread it through virality, to plant like almost like little little franchises of other photographers that are doing the same thing and getting it to out to more people. I have counted since I started doing this in the last year, I think maybe a couple dozen people that are just like me that started doing this because I was doing it. Cool. So my goal here isn't necessarily to inspire the next leader right like um i'm not gonna i don't necessarily think i'm going to like inspire the next elon musk because he sees my picture however it's very likely that i inspire somebody who gets into the photography who does inspire the next leader to that that wants to put a set up a mining operation on the moon and that's possible just due to the nature of social media so if if i'm able to do this I could potentially play a role in shaping the economy on the moon because there's you know kids looking at my pictures that are that are getting the the space bug like i did and who knows what they're going to go on to do um not everybody has a dad with a telescope to show them saturn or jupiter um but pretty much everybody has social media now or they have parents that have social media that can introduce them to these pictures and you know, I, ideally, um, that's, going to, that's going to spawn that curiosity that we're talking about. That's going to get people that would have been in that negative camp who don't see space as necessarily a means to, to their end, whatever, whatever it happens to be, humanitarian causes, environmental causes, but could see space as the solution for truly everything. Uh, because it's to an extent how I feel. I feel that by pushing these boundaries, we solve a number of problems here on Earth. Potentially, all the problems on Earth. Uh, and uh, it's like I know I, I probably come across a little bit like a um, like a cultist, maybe a space cultist. No, <laughs> like, Not even you, it that much.
0: I, I'm, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm 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 looking at. I, I pulled up your imagery just for the sake of helping me to talk uh, myself uh, to you about this. Is that your imagery? is beautiful. You have some amazing photographs. And yet at times I ask myself, how much was the coloration? How much did you change it? How much did you do? These things don't might not exist this way. How much are you, do you alter as compared to how much do you deliver exactly what you see?
1: So with the moon, particularly, I try to recreate what my eyes see with a couple exceptions. Um, for example, with the moon, I always try to draw out the color in there. So the moon is actually really, really colorful, but our eyes are very, very weak. Um, we can't discern the subtle variations in color on the moon. It just looks gray to us. Um, but there are, there is color variations on the moon. Uh, so I, I use some, some technology obviously to like extract that.
0: So you um, have, you have one that I'm looking at. And it's fairly recent on your Instagram accounts, uh, where. The moon looks like it's got blues and browns and golds and a variety of colors. It's fairly new on this list. So at the top, is that what is that? So how those that, are the how real are those, colors on the moon? So there is there are sections that are golden and some that are bluish and some that are brownish and some that are yellowish. Mm-hmm. Those exist on the moon as they are.
1: So, so here's here's the thing, um, and I think it comes down to asking yourself, what is real? Is your eyes the barometer of truth, or is it some something else? So, exists what's existing in my data is things that my eyes are not sensitive enough to discern. So, right. I have to manipulate the picture to make it visible to your eyes. I have to. It's um, so, so What you balancing? A... I, I manipulate. I stretch the image um, saturation. It's, oh, it's so,
0: software. Okay, yeah, so you're, you're changing the software, you're, you're altering the software to b- enhance different uh, color combinations that exist. But if you were on the moon, you wouldn't see exactly that. Not you
1: exactly.
0: You, so, but if you what? had, a, if you had a, a certain lens on, an infrared, or a, I'm using names that come to my mind, but if you had a certain lens on, you would see it more readily.
1: So, uh, so let me, let me put it this way. The moon is gray yeah. to our eyes. It is gray. Like you look at it, you look at it through a telescope. It's gray. I swear sometimes I see hints of the color Well, if I like really focus and I use some, some observing techniques like averted vision, um, but the, the, moon is, the moon is gray. However, in my data, when I'm taking these pictures, there are variations. Variations uh, in, in data, if you're looking at RGB channels, in order for something to be gray, the numbers for each of those channels have to be
0: identified, but
1: they're not. They're always a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what that's telling me is, uh, obviously the moon does have color, but also um, these colors, what they represent is actually really important to some of the last points I was making and that there's mineral content on the moon. And that's what those colors actually represent. And that's what I'm showing by exaggerating those subtle differences between the numbers of my data. I exaggerate them, create this color image of the moon, uh, and it, what it's, what it's showing is the, the mineral composition.
0: So now I, go ahead continue. Sorry. Uh,
1: now, uh, something that, that's really important to point out actually is one of the reasons the moon is gray is because it's been beaten so much, uh, by, by asteroids striking it in the late heavy bombardment. And unlike the earth, it hasn't had erosion to erase the evidence of those things. So it has a really nice layer of film over the entire thing. And that film is gray. However, if you dig just a little bit, the soil changes color. And that's what the Apollo 15 astronauts discovered. He was just kicking around the sand with his boot and he saw that it was orange under his boot. And if you look in my photo near where the Apollo 15 uh, craft landed, I'm not sure if you're familiar with what that is on the moon. It's um, Montes Apenninus, and there's Hadley Rill. It's a little, little can in there. Um, It is very orange in my picture. So what the astronaut was seeing is actually visible from earth and it's iron deposits in that spot. There's iron in areas where it's orange on the moon. There's titanium in places where it's more blue on the moon. So you can, you can see from these photos that the moon actually is, while it looks boring and gray to your eyes, maybe it's this very dynamic place that has a rich geological history.
0: And I never would have thought I know about the moon being bombarded and I know about the regolith. I know that there are challenges. We don't even know if we can dig uh, on the moon as of now. There are a lot of challenges yet. I never, I don't know why I'd never thought of that being just a like a dust over the top of the moon that is not allowing some of the true colors to come through. So if, so if you, Can you, or would you, have you, or have you thought of taking a picture as of the one I think you know what I'm talking about? It's got a large blue speck on it on the left-hand side, and anybody can look who's listening on. You can look up his images on Instagram, is there's one with the blue kind of looks like a little bit of an American look, I'd say it, or a horse. Could you identify what that color would represent as a mineral? Do we know those things?
1: Uh, the USGS has a very detailed map of the composition of the moon. So yeah, if, if you take my picture and you compare it to the USGS map of the mineral map of the moon, it will you should be able to figure it out. So um, i just color alone is a strong indicator of the composition, but it's not the only indicator of the composition. For example, there's uh, within the color variations, there's, there's differences. Like maybe a blue has more green to it. Maybe a, yeah. maybe a, a red area has more magenta to it. So um, like off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you what that meant. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, the, the only reason I, if, uh, I'm thinking about it is we're redesigning our website right now. And one of the things we're trying to articulate is the value of the moon or the value of the innovations or, or of these pieces. And this type of image with a rollover, a mouse rollover, where you could say this is anticipated or thought to believe or could be the possibility of these resources would be an interesting image because it's so beautiful. So that's that's where I was going and talking out loud, uh, thinking out loud uh, with you. I just think you've done a phenomenal job of giving the moon a different feel. And so, that's where my mind went is the, what does that mean? So even when you do, so let's go to the others and we can come back to the topic or the outline is you have galaxies or distant photographs of the other images, not just the moon. Are those colors just another type of filtration or do you enhance any just for the purposes of giving it color so people can see it?
1: So uh, space is very colorful. And there's this misconception somehow that space is not colorful. Um, And I don't know exactly where it comes from. But there's an important distinction. Like I mentioned earlier, what is the barometer of truth? Is it your eyes? Uh, Because if you look at a telescope at a galaxy, it kind of looks like a fuzzy gray blob. Does that mean it's actually a fuzzy gray blob? Because when I take a picture of it with my camera, it looks colorful. There's blues, there's reds, there's you know, there's a, a warm core and a cool outer arms. Uh, so, so your eyes aren't necessarily the right way to judge what space looks like, in my opinion. Uh, and the best way I can say it is if you're in a dark room and you're wearing a pink shirt, your eyes won't see the pink shirt. It'll probably look gray if there's any light in there at all, um, because your eyes just simply don't register color well in low light. However, we know the shirt is pink the shirt's pink, like we saw you put it on. So, uh, you know, it's what no, so it's, exactly? what's the barometer of truth.
0: It's, uh, there's an, in my mind, there's an interesting comparison is that dinosaurs were considered all to be green yet over the research that's been done in the, say the past 50 years, they're now saying that dinosaurs had all sorts of bright and amazing colors and that because we didn't have pictures of the dinosaurs colors, we we didn't know how to articulate back then. But today we would, there are dinosaurs that were vibrantly colorful. So it, that's why I asked the question. You just have, they're so beautiful that sometimes a, the a, it's almost as if in order for you to have it this way, you had to color it. Do you know that, what, what I mean?
1: Exactly, exactly. And let me, let me tell you this, like um, my goal here, like I'm not a scientist, right? Like I'm an astrophotographer. My goal is to make pretty pictures. So if that means pushing the saturation slider way over in Photoshop, like I do that. <laughs> like, so it doesn't mean that the color is fake. It just means that for the purposes of my photo, I made it look as pretty as possible. However, everything I do is with science at the heart of it. So if you're looking at a colorful nebula, there's false color and there's true color. By the way, I don't have to get into the semantics of that. Unless mm-hmm. to yeah, do that. I understand. Um, uh, the colors represent true data, and it's usually it's red here, it's blue here, it's orange here. That
0: that's what those colors usually mean. Uh, I,
1: I just I, make it as pretty
0: as possible. And, and yes, and and I appreciate that. And I, I what I mean, I appreciate your honesty because I feel uh, for s- to some degree it's easy to say it's easy to say that it is adjusted so much that it's not real. And and I I apologize for anybody who would hear this and feel differently. You've probably seen the photographs of a woman who is behind a filter or with makeup, and then they show themselves without the makeup or without the filter, they do a split screen and they're, they're not even close. So you're saying that it's not that type of interpret. You're not Doctoring it and adding makeup on, you're using what's already there and creating tonal and v- tonal variations and distinctions, yet you're still staying within the constructs of um, uh, not maybe nature, but natural type reoccurring conditions. Did I say that well?
1: Yeah, yeah, you did. Um, and something to keep in mind with astrophotography is it's not. Like, traditional photography, in many ways, is just documenting what your eyes are seeing. Yep. But astrophotography is not really like that. With the exception of my moon shots, um, the like, deep space shots are really about revealing the invisible. So these things are so faint. If you f- if you were in a spacecraft and you flew up to a nebula, it would just look like more space. It wouldn't <laughs> look like anything because it's so diffuse and it's so faint that it's basically invisible. There's pockets of space that l- would look really cool to your eyes, but for the most part, they don't. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about gases where you have just a couple extra molecules per square meter. Yeah, That's not something you can discern with your eyes. Cameras can pick it up
0: because uh, you also because you can also see. because you're seeing the totality of it but i think uh, the uh you're not the forest from the trees when you're from a distance it looks one way but when you get up you it's not the same because you're now so close to it well in space when you're so close to it it's just open space
1: yeah exactly you, you nailed it it's like you know when you're in a forest you can see through the trees when you're outside the forest you can't mm-hmm. it's it's it, there's this um it's
0: hard to convey that. I think um, you did, You said it. You said it well. I think I got it. I just had never thought about it that way. Is because of things like Star Trek, where you would they'd get to this nebula or this new region, and they would be going through this orange thick deposit. And what you're really saying is, and tell me if I'm wrong, is when you would finally get to that nebula or distant place, it's going to be few molecules per square meter so therefore it will not look the same way as it does from the distance the distance gives you that different perspective
1: well i'll I'll make an example here i take pictures of galaxies and they look incredibly colorful and vibrant beautiful um not to like you know pat myself on the back
0: no no you 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 do you do so i'm gonna (laughs) let let me pat you on the back
1: (laughs) Uh, but um we are really close and inside a very big bright beautiful galaxy called the milky way but when you look outside at night what do you see you see well if you're in the city you see nothing if you're in a very (laughs) very dark sky you see a very very faint shimmer from the collective mass of all those stars Mm -hmm. so and that's something that looks incredible in photos milky way photos are incredible you see these the beautiful colors you see oranges you see splashes of red you see blues you see areas where there seems to be thick dust blocking stars like you see all this structure but you don't see that at all with your eyes it's not right. because it's not there or that it's not real it's just it's so sparse these things are very far away they're very faint um and that's
0: that's just the nature of space everything's it, just so spread out uh again i had not thought about it in that way so i love it because i had i i bring hollywood or cinema or theater whatever you want to call it that comes to mind before the reality of what comes to mind and and so to your moon images you see the gray and you take it as the gray yet it's kind of like finding a, a beautiful antique under some dust And you wipe it off and you say, oh, my God, look what's underneath this. And that example of what was it, Apollo 15, you said, where you kicked the boot and there was orange on his boot is an example that I had never heard. And it now helps me to think very differently about the moon in a way that I had not thought about before. Great.
1: great. So maybe I should um, segue into my final point, which is why the moon is so important yeah um so i i've been sharing space photos with public for a little over two years and i've dabbled in a little bit of everything i you've seen my page I, i shoot galaxies nebulas planets or sun and of course the moon and i found that despite being the easiest thing to shoot and um you know arguably the most recognizable object most familiar object the moon is by far the most popular object for my audience i see it in my analytics i take pictures of the moon versus A Galaxy, the Galaxy being what I think is the cooler target, Um, it's my moon pictures outperform them from an analytics standpoint. I look at likes, I look at shares. So I'm understanding these photographs are resonating more with them. So it kind of hurts me as an astrophotographer because frankly, I spend more work on the deep space stuff. Um, You know, (laughs) I'm like, oh, I pushed the limits of my equipment. I took a picture of something millions of light years away. Uh, And I, you know, I'm watching stars being born in a mission nebula and they're like, oh, cool. Big gray rock upvote." All right. Um, So, so it's, uh, it's, it's frustrating and funny, but I think it says a lot. And so my theory on why the moon, despite being the most accessible thing I'm shooting is the most popular thing in my, in my feed is the familiarity is very important um it adds context to it people know what the moon is everybody knows everybody's seen the moon with their naked eye but it kind of looks like this little sticker in the sky there's no depth to it there's no structure there's you know unless you're really focused on clear night you don't even really can't really tell there's anything to it uh, aside from the phases but you obviously in you know good seeing conditions. You look up, you can see the Maria, you see like the, the, the darker plains, uh, where hardened basaltic lava once flowed, and uh, really focused observers can even make out the ejecta pattern of Tycho crater. So the moon is, in my opinion, taken for granted by everybody. It's just simply a subtle part of your life that you don't really think about. Um, so what's different about my pictures, I think, is I am showing it to you in a way that you've never seen before because your naked eyes are showing you this flat, distant thing. And I'm showing you, wow, it's actually three-dimensional. It has, it has a definite curve to it. It has irregularities around the edges. It has deep craters and tall mountains that you can see in the photos. And by the way, that's how it looks through binoculars, too. So if you haven't, look, look at the moon through binoculars. It looks Really?
0: really? You'll get more of the that okay
1: oh yeah yeah you can and if you're in early phases you can actually see the faint shadowed side which is really cool because that's only illuminated by earth as it, uh, earth's earth uh, sunlight's bouncing off earth illuminating the back side of the moon uh and then along the terminator line that's where the shadow meets the light you see the long shadows from mountains so you can see not only just the fact that the moon is spherical but you can see the depth to individual features on the moon. So you're saying, wow, that's a tall mountain right there. That's a shallow crater right there. Um, so that brings a, that kind of sense of wonder that I'm talking about earlier, is that there's this familiar object that you've taken for granted your whole life and suddenly you're seeing it in a new light. That sparks a curiosity. And I think that's why so many people follow my page is that they like being fed that. Um, you get endorphins from seeing something in a new way. That's why we like, you know, really cool new movies. And, you know, we, we, we want to watch the, the newest thing. We want to read things that feed us endorphins. We need our dopamine fix by going on social media. There's, we, we get something out of this. And by feeding into that, I'm able to hopefully inspire people to, look at the moon as more than just something to take for granted in your sky. There's this actual object there uh, that's accessible, surprisingly accessible. And it looks very close when you look at it through binoculars or when you look at it uh, in my pictures. It's of course, you know, a quarter of a million miles away. It's pretty far away, but it feels so close. You could almost touch it. And I want people to feel like they can touch it because they can. They can if things go well into the commercial space sector if we figure out this whole this whole you know kind of political barrier that's preventing us from you know having this these recurring trips to the moon it is entirely possible within your lifetime that you could just go to the moon for for a week or two Um, as a as a just normal civilian
0: we we have we have the timeline ready we're working on it it'll happen Yeah, you know, we we actually Project Moon Hut does. <laughs> so no, I I agree with you. I think that in this in the timeline, depending on how old you are, there is a chance that there is the opportunity for individuals to get to the moon and to really transform how we live on this planet through that exercise, as you brought up the innovations and everything else that go with it. Yeah
1: that's really, I guess, the the point of this whole topic is, you know, how are these pictures going to be shaping the future of humanity? And, you know, it's, I'm not necessarily, like I said, going to inspire the the next big pioneer that that forges their way uh, into space. Um, But, you know, if you look throughout history, these pioneers all had various sources of inspiration. It wasn't just, they didn't just you know just pull this idea out of the ether to push the boundaries of human exploration like Elon Musk he's you know like he was a big nerd growing up you know he he was inspired by astrophysicists and um, you know that's I'm not an astrophysicist but he was inspired by people that were pushing the boundaries from like a mathematical standpoint and and learn about our universe through them um, and, but you know going back further like Galileo, for example, uh, Galileo was inspired by a philosopher. He was inspired by Aristotle. So, you, I, I doubt Aristotle knew he was going to inspire Galileo, which changed our view of them, of our place in the universe. Um, Aristotle was just doing what Aristotle did.
0: <laughs> Very much
1: making observations. Um, in Col- Columbus, um, I. Don't know who thinks he's a good person versus a bad person i'm not here to make that argument Mm -hmm. uh columbus uh definitely was an explorer uh and you know he was inspired by other explorers so he took he looked at what other people were doing and pushed the next step i'm hoping to inspire other other people that are looking to push the boundaries in photography and looking at my moon pictures and saying how can i make this better how can i make this cooler how can i get more people to look at this Uh, and I feel like I've already been successful in that, in that regard, which is why I tend to focus on that as my objective, because that's a victory for me. I feel like that's a legacy that I'm going to have by taking pictures of space. I'm guaranteeing other people will take pictures of space. And those people taking pictures of space are going to inspire people that might have the resources and the drive to assist with your goals, getting people on the moon. Getting an economy, a sustainable economy that makes sense and mm-hmm. just grows that mirth ecosystem until it isn't a big deal if we just need to suddenly, you know,
0: skip off Earth for a few weeks while a virus blows over. <laughs> or and or, or in turn, there's an innovation that comes out of it that improves how we live on Earth because of the photography that you've taken.
1: That's the practical answer. I'm more the dreamer, I think. But there was a very important reason (laughs) that I brought up that point, because I think it's honestly the most relevant.
0: Uh, there's, There's a little, the little bit of dreamer is part of that thing that gets you up in the morning. The practicality is the outcome out of the efforts that are put forward. And so your inspiration is the practicality you're dreaming and getting up is to find that next photograph that changes so that it's out there, that you'll find it. So I think you've done beautiful work. And as I, as I shared with uh, in the introduction, this was a big departure from what we've had so far. And there was an, there's there an, been a process that we've done for Project Moon Knot and, and for the Age of Infant is in the beginning we brought on very technology oriented individuals and we still do. We have some great individuals coming on and, and have had, but we're also expanding out into different realms of thinking, and that's the reason I reached out to you, and that's the reason I felt that you you fit our narrative, and I felt it, and that that landed us landed us to this day.
1: Great, I'm, uh, glad you feel like it, it fits in. I. It's funny that I, I never really thought about these, these things um, until you forced me to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, it's like I understood why, why I like taking pictures of space. And it's because I'm a dreamer. It's because I'm, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I like thinking about space. I like the idea of going to space. But, um, but really when it comes down to it, like, I want to play a role in the space program. Um, and I can, uh, like, I have, have unique skills that, I, that fit into that role. So,
0: but the, the, the journey, the journey of us creating the title and forcing you to find your way and to then have to teach me, which is what our methodology is you're teaching me something, and forced you to re examine so much of who you are, I think. And that happens every time we have these podcasts. So,
1: what do you think? Do you think that we've um, that taking pictures of space is helping, you know, Im- improve the human race?
0: A good question. I would say that taking pictures of space w- will help to do a few things. Number one, it will further the interest of those who are in space. Number two, it'll it's an information source to be able to share and and discuss what's actually happening out there as compared to the way it's been presented in the past. I think you give it a colorful texture flavor that if someone wanted to share something, they would go to your imagery. And if they knew, I don't know, I've never read underneath yours, I read under some, if you explained more that this is actually what it is, that would be useful for someone who's articulating and sharing. And the third one is, I do believe there are be going to be people who might not have given the moon a second look. And by seeing it in, through your eyes, through seeing it through your photography, it will change them. I think the only challenge that I have, and this is not a complaint, it is just the suggestion is, I didn't know how real they were. So the challenge becomes, am I seeing a real image like we've discussed earlier, or are we seeing one that's been enhanced just for the purposes of marketing? And so now today, I will look at your work in a much different light because now I know that you're not enhancing it. You're, you're giving me a view that does exist in a, in a tonal change, but you're not changing it. Uh, I think, I'm hoping you're getting what I'm saying. I, I've, you've done more today than all the images I've looked at since I've seen you. Because now I know. All right. All right, So yes, I, I do think, and I do think that you, with what you've said, you are a definite person who we want involved in Project Moon Hut because Project Moon Hut is about developing achieving a box of the roof and a door on the moon this first phase we have four phases of development it is about expanding the moon ecosystem and creating this mirth ecosystem so that there is constantly uh travel between the earth and the moon and the selling of materials and content back and forth and it also is about changing the and improving the world And yet, and I think that your imagery, and I I would like to connect you with Andreas, who's connecting, creating our website, because I think that he's a space, 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 space guy. He is on the extreme. He's brilliant. He would have fun with you because of his love for space and your love for space. So I, I appreciate the work that you're doing, and I think that we together can create a new future. The goal. So uh, this was fantastic, uh, Andrew. It was absolutely fantastic. We went into places I really wanted to go, finding out a little bit about the art itself and also where it came from and how you got to where you are today, I think also was a a great journey to have explored. So thank you. Thank you very much.
1: It was my pleasure.
0: Uh, I want to thank all of you out there for taking the time to listen in today. And I do hope you learned from Andrew. I do hope you check out his Instagram uh, feed. I do hope that you learn something today that will also make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Again, we are sponsored by, and we're in association with the Project Moon Hut Foundation. We were named by NASA, Project Moon Hut, where we look to establish a box of the roof and a door on the moon, the moon hut, through the accelerated development of an earth and space-based ecosystem than to use those endeavors, that paradigm shifting thinking, the innovations, and turn them back on earth to improve how we live on earth for all species. Now, Andrew, what is the best, single best way for people to connect with you?
1: Uh, Definitely on Instagram. It's where I'm the most active. I'm uh, cosmic underscore background on there, Okay. Um, but I'm on all the major social media channels.
0: So they can reach out to you through any of those channels. It's the easiest way to connect and you do reply.
1: I, I try to. Sometimes uh, sometimes my inbox gets a little crazy, but I do my best. If I don't reply, you just have to keep bugging me, and I will eventually.
0: I, was, I, had, I had to fight my way through the same, same clutter, and we ended up connecting, so I appreciate that. Sure. So for all of those, again, you listening in, there's multiple ways to connect to me. It's david at moonhut.org. There's the Twitter account at Project Moon Hut. You can also directly to me at Goldsmith. There's We have a LinkedIn account, we have a Facebook account for Project Moon Hut, and uh, we have an Instagram account. We haven't been putting things up there, but we do have an Instagram account. We also just put up at uh, at the URL, www.projectmoonhut.org, or you can go to moonhut.org, both will get you there. We have just put up a temporary placeholder. We took down our old website. We're in the process of building a new one. Hopefully in the next few weeks, it'll be up. You can... Keep in touch with us to see what's going on as we move forward. There's a a short form to fill in. We're not going to spam you. We're not going to be hitting you with all sorts of information. But you can start to feel what Project Hut is about. That said, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.